0: Hello, welcome to this month's episode of Voices for the Animals. I'm your host, Michelle Coppola. Whether or not you consume animal products, I personally think it is very important for all of us to be aware of exactly where our food comes from. In this country, almost 99% of the meat and dairy we consume comes from industrialized factory farms. Now, despite what you may see in commercials and on food packaging, and if you didn't already know, factory farms are a far cry from cows grazing in green bucolic pastures, chickens pecking away in the sunshine, and pigs wallowing in grassy fields. Instead, it means thousands of cows standing shoulder-to-shoulder in concentrated feeding operations often surrounded by piles of their own waste. Pregnant pigs forced to live in metal crates for months at a time. And laying hens living in boxes that are so small... They can't even stretch out their wings. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for what you eat here. Again, I just think this is a matter of being aware of where your food comes from and that we do have an opportunity to do better. In the past few years, thanks to public pressure, a handful of states have passed laws to try and make conditions for our food animals a little bit more humane. However, there is pushback from lawmakers in heavy agriculture and meat-producing states, and they're trying to pass federal legislation that would effectively negate those laws and prevent new ones from being passed in the future. It's called the EATS Act, and if you care at all about animal welfare, whether you eat animal products or not, you should know about it and understand what it means for not only farm animals, but also for food safety in our country. Here to talk with us about it today is Wayne Pacelli. He's president of Animal Wellness Action. Wayne is a real star in the animal welfare movement and someone who's been on the front line of this fight to make our food supply safer and more humane for decades. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Wayne. I want to start with this. Can you explain what the EATS Act is and what it would do if passed and why it's being pushed in Congress right now?
1: Yes, well, the EATS Act stands for Exposing Agricultural Trade Suppression Act. It's a real mouthful. And really, it's just the latest effort by the factory farming industry, in particular, the industrial pork industry, to unwind very modest state rules to give animals more space and to also restrict the sale of pork from operations that, severely confined to breeding sows. The breeding sows, you know, for the last, you know, 40 or 50 years, most of them have been confined. Of The 6 million sows who are in the U.S. Uh, pig breeding population, most of them have been confined in 2-foot by 7-foot cages called gestation crates. So these are basically the pre-birthing crates. So the sows are pregnant, and these are animals who can weigh 3, 4 500, 550 pounds, and they are essentially immobilized in these crates for four-month stretches, which is the period of their gestation. So they cannot turn around. They can barely take a quarter step forward, and these are intelligent animals. You know, they have the emotional intelligence and the general smarts of a dog. So if we did this to a dog and we put them in a crate barely larger than their body, for four months at a stretch, that would qualify as cruelty under many uh, state anti-cruelty statutes. And the pork industry didn't like the reform efforts in Oregon, California, Colorado, Massachusetts, Michigan, Ohio, other states that have banned these crates. And they were particularly agitated about California's Prop 12, which was passed overwhelmingly by voters in November 2018. It had a phase-in, and as of January 1, 2022, that measure was supposed to take full effect, and it would not only have expanded the space allotments for breeding sows in production facilities, but it would have stopped the sale of any pork that came from those factory farms that confined the sows. They challenged it, they being the pork industry, and they, they challenged it in the courts. They lost in the district courts. They lost in the uh, appeals courts they got this in front of the u.s supreme court much to the surprise of a lot of observers and then this conservative u.s supreme court ruled five to four that california exercised its proper authority in passing the statute it did not invalidate prop 12 like the national pork producers council and the american farm bureau federation wanted that was a huge loss for them We celebrated, as did many others who care about animals, and then immediately after that, the allies of the National Pork Research Council and the Farm Bureau got legislation introduced in Congress called the EATS Act, and we've been battling away in the Congress since that introduction to thwart its advance.
0: You know, you touched on this uh, when you were answering that question, but I do want to make the point that it's estimated that one in four pigs being raised for meat in the U.S. actually belong to Chinese-owned companies, and a lot of people may not realize that. In your opinion, how invested and powerful are these foreign interests in seeing the EATS Act get passed?
1: The pork industry or the pig industry is the biggest example of foreign-owned agriculture in the United States two foreign-owned companies control 40% of the U.S. uh, pig population. And the biggest one, or the bigger of the two, is Smithfield Foods, which was acquired by the Communist Party of China uh, in 2013. It was enabled by a $5 billion loan from the Bank of China, which is a state institution, and now it is wholly controlled by the Chinese government. The second... Big actor is JBS, which is a Brazil-based company. We don't have precisely the same acute concerns about JBS as we do about the government of China. In China, what we're seeing are high-rise factory farms as many as 29 stories high, with these basically it looks like a giant condominium complex in New York City. And it's filled with pigs who never get out of these rooms. It's a Faro to finish operation. That is the kind of brave new world image, very dystopian vision of agriculture. If Smithfield Foods, which is the biggest member of the National Producers Council, achieves its goal of passing the EATS Act, we will wipe out uh, state rules and we will then enable the Chinese to build these giant industrial-style high-rise factory farms in the United States. Some people may say, oh, that's Far-fetched that couldn't that couldn't occur. Who would have thought factory farming would have started? Where you have thousands and thousands of animals standing shoulder to shoulder. This is just this is just the souped-up model of the same enterprise. And no, I'm deeply concerned about Smithfield Foods. When you think about food security being national security, why would we ever cede control of an enormous sector of American agriculture to? Uh, a global adversary like china and of course china loves it because they can outsource the the waste that comes from these factory farms to the united states we can outsource zoonotic disease threats uh, a pig and avian flu virus which in 2009 was a major threat in the united states there are so many elements of this that are extremely dangerous and frankly i'm shocked that many republican lawmakers who talk about being tough on China are just genuflecting to China by supporting the East act.
0: Well, and it's so interesting to me because the conservative senators and congresspeople are also the ones who espouse states' rights, and yet they are all about passing this law that would basically supersede states regulating their own agriculture interests. And it's not just about pigs. I mean, this would effectively negate thousands of laws that are passed to protect not only pigs, but also give a little bit more humane conditions to cows and chickens as well.
1: Uh, There are a good number of Republicans who uh, espouse a state's rights view and a a federalism view that is a traditionally conservative view, and they make political decisions based on that philosophy. Others just talk those points and don't act consistently. So the good news is that, uh, that about 20 members of the House Republican conference have signed letters. They absolutely oppose the EATS Act. it, it, It is an assault on states' rights. It is an assault on national sovereignty, and they don't want any part of it. So I do think that some of these farm state lawmakers are acting with great inconsistency.
0: I want to circle back a bit to this issue of food safety, because I think that when we talk about the EATS Act and and other legislation, you know, we tend to, as animal welfare advocates, focus on that part of it. But the fact of the matter is, this is about the safety of our food supply, of our meat supply, of our dairy supply, because animals living in these unsanitary, crowded conditions really become so much more susceptible to zoonotic diseases that get passed to human beings and pathogens like salmonella and E. coli, and even a lot of our pandemics can be traced back to the way we raise meat.
1: Well, you said it very well, and I'll just add to that by by noting that we cannot have confidence in our U.S. Department of Agriculture and our U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Those are the two principal regulatory agencies that oversee food safety in the United States, and they're both incredible examples of industry capture. I mean, USDA is is an extension of the factory farming industry. Tom Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture, he served for eight years under President Obama, and then he obviously was uh, ended his service when Donald Trump became president. But when Joe Biden was elected, he he resumed. And, and during that four-year period, you know, between his service as Agriculture Secretary, where did he go? He became the CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, which was promoting Uh, dairy all over the world. And, you know, we know that uh, large numbers of uh, people of color, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Latinos, uh, Native Americans are lactose intolerant. You can only imagine if you're trying to push this milk product in Asia or Africa or other countries, you're really, you know, promoting this product to people who cannot safely digest the product. I always say that to show that Again, this is somebody who has not demonstrated a concern for animal welfare, in fact.
0: Or people Vilsack. welfare, actually, if, you, yeah, if right. you extrapolate from that.
1: Exactly. And, and Vilsack and the Department of Justice supported the National Pork Producers Council and asked the Supreme Court to overturn Prop 12. So the Biden administration worked to undermine Prop 12. Fortunately, a mix of conservative and liberal justices saw through this this charade of the what they called the dormant commerce clause challenge and ruled that california acted appropriately that it's its action to pass prop 12 was constitutional that states have rights to adopt animal welfare and food safety standards and by god yes because the federal government doesn't do a damn thing for farm animals only since november Have we had any federal farm animal welfare standards for animals on the farm? And that was the organic livestock and poultry standards that has been 20 years, 50 years in the making. It was finally made complete in November, and that applies anti-gestation crate standards, anti-mutilation standards such as tail docking, and a whole range of other animal welfare standards to animals raised under the organic seal. Those are the first farm animal standards. USDA has no other role in safeguarding farm animal welfare, and the United States has food safety standards, but there are millions and millions of people sickened every year Mm. with salmonella poisoning and a wide range of other uh, foodborne pathogens. And some of that is a derivative of these intensive confinement conditions when you keep animals stressed, overcrowded, in generally unhealthy circumstances, you're going to create more ripe conditions for disease to spread. I mean, when you have a healthy animal, his or her immune system is more robust. Factory farming is a prescription for the spread of disease. So we cannot trust these federal agencies because they are captured by industry and Congress has not not passed laws. Rather than having the EATS Act, we should have a national policy against gestation crates. The Congress should be doing the exact opposite thing that it's proposing through the EATS Act. We should be giving more space to these animals. We should be saying, if you're going to raise these animals for food, the least you can do is give them some decent treatment before they're sent to slaughter. And I think what we've we've seen with factory farming is that you know, every day can be miserable for the animals, not just the day of slaughter. Factory farming was an example of human innovation divorced from conscience. Now, I, I think what we need is we need human innovation attached to conscience. I'm not saying we should go back to a 1930s style agricultural production model. We should be having a 21st century model, and we can use our human creativity and our incredible capacity for innovation to deliver food to people that doesn't leave animals in such a terrible state of distress.
0: You're listening to Voices for the Animals on 90.7 FM KBOO Portland. I'm your host, Michelle Coppola, and today we are talking to Wayne Pacelli, President of Animal Wellness Action and Center for a Humane Economy, about the EATS Act. This legislation has been introduced in Congress attached to the Farm Bill, and it would effectively negate any state laws that mandate better conditions for farm animals. So, Wayne, I want to pivot a bit here and talk about the people who are on the front lines of this, the farmers. Is it really more expensive for them to give animals more space? I wanted to um, also mention that Senator Grassley of Iowa, who is one of the main sponsors of the EATS Act, he says that these state laws like Prop 12 that mandate more space for animals make it more expensive for farmers and consumers and really stifle competition. Is any of that accurate?
1: Well, you know, Senator Grassley is kind of a marvel in some ways. I mean, he's in 90 years old and he's still serving in Congress. So yeah. I will say, though, that he's, he's ill-informed about um, Prop 12 and the broader marketplace when it comes to pork sales. And we at animal wellness action and the center for a humane economy the two groups that i serve uh, as president for we did an analysis in fact we being two of our agricultural veterinarians and we looked at how the pork industry has been changing over the last 20 years i led a ballot measure to ban gestation crates in 2002 in florida that was the first state law to stop these extreme confinement crates that immobilize the breeding sows and then I worked on a measure in 2006 in Arizona to ban the crates and then went to California for Prop 2, not Prop 12, but there was an antecedent 10 years before Prop 12 to stop extreme confinement. We went in landslides in all of those states. And then in 2016 and 2018, we went to Massachusetts and then back to California for the measure to fortify or extend the space allotments for for animals produced in those states, but then also to restrict the sale of pork and said again, no matter where the pigs are raised, they cannot be raised on an intensive confinement factory farm. So over this time, many companies like McDonald's and Burger King and Costco and, and Safeway and Kroger and so many other companies, every big name in food retail basically came out with a position against gestation crates. Now, some of them have been slow to implement them, but I think McDonald's is 90% of the way there. So we've been slowly seeing over these last two decades a transition away from intensive confinement in the form of gestation crates. And we have now nearly 50% of the 6 million sows that are raised in the United States. Those are the ones who are kept in the gestation crates are out of these are out of these crates. California.
0: I do want to clarify, when you say they're out of the gestation crates, this does not mean that they are frolicking happily in a pasture out of doors. Their lives are still very exactly. confined, but at least they can move.
1: Exactly. So it could be, a mul- you know, you, you could have multiple systems. You could have them in a group 10 in a very large, you know, industrial type facility, or they could be you know, out in a pasture setting and living in hoop barns and the hoop barns would protect them from the elements. So there are a wide range of systems. But as you say, the common feature is at least they get to move around at least a little bit. So we have we have we have half of the animals out of those intensive confinement crates right now. California and Massachusetts represent just about, you know, 10 percent of well, I shouldn't even say that it's closer to eight percent of all pork that is grown in the U.S. or animals raised and killed for for pork, and the U.S. goes to California and and Massachusetts because not only does the pork industry supply 50 U.S. states and 6 U.S. territories, but we ship pork in the United States to 139 countries. I mean, our number one trading partner there is Mexico, and then China is second. So we're shipping one-third of all U.S.-produced pork to foreign markets. So when you factor that in, and then you factor in exemptions uh, in Prop 12, and the question three was the Massachusetts measure. That was the the name of the measure, the designation of the measure in that state, which also passed. Um, that was in 2016. There are exemptions for frozen pork or combined products like a TV dinner or a can of pork and beans. So California and Massachusetts. To comply with Prop 12 and Question 3, the, anti, the extreme anti-confinement standards, uh, anti-confinement standards that were established, represents just 6% of all U.S. produced pork. I mentioned that 50% of U.S. produced pork is coming from animals already out of crates. So Senator Grassley, going back to him, saying, "Oh, California is trying to impose their will on Iowa pork producers." Not one Iowa pork producer, if he or she does not want to, needs to change because thousands of other pork producers already have, and they can accommodate California and Massachusetts today and tomorrow. So the whole thing is a contrivance, is a terrible exaggeration, and it's really about ideology. They're trying to make the claim that somehow this is an imposition on them when it's not an imposition on anyone. It's a market opportunity for the thousands of farmers who have already turned away from extreme confinement. This is about their ideology. It's about the fact that they don't want any state to impose these policies because they fear that more of this is going to be done and that they're going to have to change down the line. But their whole narrative right now is, oh, my God, the poor, you know, farmer in Iowa. Wrong. Thousands of farmers in Iowa already don't do this. So Senator Grassley is deeply misinformed. As I said, very impressive guy that he's still serving in the Senate at the age of 90, but he's ill-informed on this issue.
0: Okay, so I'm going to use a very bad analogy right now and ask you about how the sausage is made when it comes to lawmaking. I know that we are in limbo and operating under an extension of the last farm bill until we can get to this one, but at the moment, it looks like Congress can't get anything accomplished, not even funding the federal government as a whole, right? So what is the status of the EATS Act now, and what do you feel are its chances of passing?
1: Well, the Congress is is built to see legislation die. So the ETS Act has no chance of advancing as a standalone bill. So typically, a bill like that would be attached to a larger measure. And every five years, the Congress uh, passes a bill called the Farm Bill. And it's actually a bit of a misnomer. The Farm Bill deals not just with farm and commodity policy, but it deals with nutrition programs and Uh, land conservation and uh, agricultural research and a number of other issues. So we actually at Animal Wellness Action are working to get a strengthened uh, animal fighting law. We want to ban horse slaughter. We want to end greyhound racing. And we are working to develop amendments to the Farm Bill to achieve those policy goals. That's essentially what the EATS Act authors have done. They want to attach their EATS Act to the moving Farm Bill. And they've got, you know, some some pretty good allies like Glenn Thompson, the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee from Pennsylvania. He has publicly expressed his support for the EATS Act. Debbie Stabenow, who's the chair of the Senate Ag Committee, is opposed to the EATS Act. And she has said that she is in support of Proposition 12. Uh, so they've got a tough slog. And what we've done is we've worked with key partners and uh, so far, three letters have been sent to the leaders of the Ag Committee, 166 Democrats in the House, which is a big portion of them, along with five Republicans, sent a, a letter saying they oppose the EATS Act. They don't want to include it included in the Farm Bill. Then a separate letter of 16 Republicans wrote the same, uh, you know, the same, sent the same message to the leaders of the Ag Committee. 30 senators, most of them Democrats, also sent a letter to their Ag leaders Ag committee leaders, and said, we don't want the EATS Act. Now we're working on a separate letter with additional Republicans opposing the EATS Act. So we are not resting on our laurels. We are working on this every single day. We're asking people who care about food safety, about animal welfare, about protection of the environment, about family farming, about responsible agriculture, to weigh in and contact their two U.S. senators and the U.S. representative and urge them to oppose the EATS Act. As I said, you know, we have a strong case to make. Not only did the voters of states across the country decide these issues, those are American elections. The Congress is trying to overturn American elections. This is wrong. Californians and Arizonans and Massachusetts residents, they decided these issues fair and square. The National Park Research Council opposed all of these measures and they got their clocks cleaned. They lost by double digits on a measure to stop extreme confinement of veal calves, breeding sows, and laying hens, and then to stop the sale of eggs, pork, or veal that come from those confinement operations. It shows that this is almost a universal value that people who eat meat, or don't eat meat, they agree that if animals are going to be raised for, for human consumption, that at least we give them a bit of a decent life. We allow them to move around. So... Anyway, I feel, I feel hopeful about it, but we are not relenting. Things can turn on a dime, and we've got some really strong opponents. The agribusiness industry has had its way in the Congress for an awfully long time, and uh, we have to stay really vigilant on this issue.
0: I don't want to let you go before I say to you that uh, I've been following you for a long time, and I've always felt that you are one of the most knowledgeable and eloquent voices on behalf of animals. And I remember seeing you on television, I mean, over a decade ago, fighting for these same issues. And it seems that uh, how difficult it is to get even the most minor concessions in animal welfare from, you know, the powerful agriculture interests to get those done. I wonder what keeps you so passionate and motivated about this issue when it's such a hard won battle?
1: Well, Michelle, thank you. It's a really important question, because sticking with this, like if people are involved in animal protection and not feeling burned out or overwhelmed, or feeling like they're tilting at windmills is so important. I mean, when people join this cause, it's really important to stay. And I think for me, you know, number one, I just have a burning passion for animals. I recognize that animals have lives that matter to them. They care about their own lives and their their well-being just as much as we care about ours. And they have the same instincts to survive that we do. I know that they're conscious. I know that they're sentient. And I also, you know, know that we human beings are so smart. We can live our lives. We can meet all of our needs, whether it's food or research or clothing without victimizing animals. You know, that may have been different, you know, 200 years ago or even a hundred years ago, or certainly, you know, 2000 years ago, but now is what we're talking about. And, I believe that we humans have a responsibility. You know, I, we hear the term animal rights. You know, for me, it's less about animal rights. It's more about human responsibility. It's about how do we use our incredible intelligence? How do we use our power and how we act toward them is a measure of our personal and collective and societal character? And we already have anti-cruelty norms in our society. States began to pass laws against animal cruelty in the first half of the 19th century, 170 years ago. All I want to do is logically apply anti-cruelty principles to the broad array of settings in which animals live. And whether it's factory farms or whether it's the fur trade or whether it's trophy hunting or leg hole traps or elephants and other wild animals in circuses, I just think we can do better. And one of the things that that keeps me going in addition to those core values is that we're making progress. I am enlivened and I am inspired by the progress we're making. You know, when Ringling Brothers in 2016, you know, ended its live animal acts, when Giorgio Armani and hundreds of other major clothing sellers said, we're going to stop using fur. When we passed the FDA Modernization Act to eliminate an animal testing mandate, you know, that is so empowering. When we've passed five of five ballot measures to give animals raised for food more space against the weight of all of these agribusiness companies that fought us every step of the way, we had landslide victories in every one of them. All of that gives me strength. And I, I really want to remind all of you listening, who care about animals, you are not alone. And really one of the important things for you to do is to be part of a larger community of people who care and who are taking strategic action to address these issues. And I really wanna do my best. I've been fortunate to hold positions with major animal welfare organizations, including Animal Wellness Action the Center. I wanna use your time effectively and I wanna use your voice So that you are empowered to drive change. I've seen incredible change. I started an animal advocacy group when I was a college student, when I was 19. And we were just on the margins. People wouldn't listen to us. Now we're a mainstream powerful force. We're going to defeat the EATS Act. We're going to pass this new legislation on animal fighting. We're going to pass a ban on horse slaughter. We're going to end greyhound racing just in this Congress. So that's really, Michelle, what motivates me is that we're making progress. We're not standing in place, but occasionally we have to fight defensive battles. That's what a movement is involved. You have offense and defense. You know, the opponents, you know, try to attack you and you have to defend yourself. And that's what we're doing with the EATS (music) Act.
0: You've been listening to Voices for the Animals, and we've been talking with Wayne Pacelli, president of Center for a Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action. If you'd like to get involved in the tremendous work that they are doing, you can find them at animalwellnessaction.org. You can also find those links as well as more information on the EATS Act and how to reach out to your federal congresspeople at the Voices for the Animals show page at kbu.fm. And that'll do it for this month's edition of Voices for the Animals. I'm Michelle Capola. Until next time, please be... Be kind to animals, to others, and most of all to yourself.